All right, well, uh, good morning to everybody. It's good to see you guys. We're going to be in the Bible, so if you would, grab one of those black Bibles if you don't have one, or just get your Bible app out. We're going to be in Acts chapter 4 today. And uh, just to give you a little bit of context, last week we... uh, Last week, we, um, we looked at the second evangelistic speech in Acts. We're going to see these evangelistic speeches kind of come one after another uh, to different audiences. Um, so we saw one in Acts chapter 2, and then we saw the second one to the, the Jewish folks there in Jerusalem uh, last, last week. I think that was last week. Uh, so basically what that, uh, in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John were going up to the temple. They see a paralyzed man. They heal him. And in the wake of that healing, that miraculous healing, they, uh, Peter preaches this great evangelistic sermon to, to the folks looking on. And uh, this week, basically, it's the continuation of that story. So this week, the very same people that tried to snuff out Christ, the very same people, the religious leaders, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and, and all the folks there involved with the temple worship and all these things, they tried to snuff out Jesus. This week, we're going to look at how they try and snuff out Jesus' followers. They try and exert the same pressure, the same power, the same earthly authority, the same threats to get them to to stop spreading this good news of Jesus and his resurrection. So that's what we're going to look at today. Uh, A lot of you guys know this by now, um, but we we had a house fire yesterday, um, and... We're still sort of reeling from that, but uh, you know, yesterday afternoon, there's a lot of things, as I said in the email, to thank God for. The fact that it happened in the middle of the day, the fact that a neighbor saw it and knocked on our door. Um, but as I was thinking about that, and honestly, as I was thinking not about, oh my gosh, this is terrible, but I was looking around at how uh, our neighbors and, I mean, how, how much support we got. I mean, just the fact that we live like right in between three fire departments and we had six fire trucks there. We had, I couldn't even count how many firefighters were, were in our yard, in our house, all around the perimeter within like five minutes. Uh, we had neighbors coming out of the woodwork. I'm sure we made next door. I haven't checked. Uh, but we had neighbors. I mean, we, we literally ran out of the house in our Christmas pajamas, barefoot. I mean, we were playing a game of Ticket to Ride Europe which my son William was, was creaming us in uh, when we got the knock on the door that, hey, your, your house is on fire. And so we had neighbors coming by bringing us shoes. We had neighbors coming by bringing us jackets. Uh, we have a whole wardrobe of stuff from, from our neighbors uh, bringing waters, letting us use the restroom in their house or whatever we needed. Uh, it was just really beautiful to see the support we get from like our local government, which you know, that's why we have fire departments and things is because we have this local government organization that provides these services. Uh, we're thankful for that. We're thankful for our friends, our neighbors, our church that just poured in support, people that found out about it, praying for us, et cetera, asking what they could do. And, you know, as I was looking around thinking about, you know, how devastating a house fire can be, but in the context of so much love and so much support, my mind drifted to my sermon. In fact, Stacy goes, now what were you preaching on again today? Because it always seems that life lines up with these sermons. Um, but I started thinking about it, and there wasn't a clear connection at first. And I was like, I don't know if this can make it as a sermon illustration today. Um, but I thought about what, what could be worse than standing outside while you're dealing with a house fire, surrounded by the love of your neighbors, surrounded by your local government sending firefighters to come put out the fire. What could be worse than that? 
And I thought about today's topic. Today we're going to look at persecution, guys. You know what's worse than standing outside watching your house on fire being surrounded by the support of your neighbors? It's when you're standing outside of your house or your place of worship and it's your neighbors that set it on fire. Or it's the local government in the region that you live in that started it. That's worse. (laughs) And that's what we're looking at today. Uh, We're going to get a taste of that in our passage. But I read a a Christianity Today article, and there's an organization called Open Doors. They do great work on tracking persecution of the church throughout the world. And uh, uh, Christianity Today did an article on their world watch list. They come out with this every year. I think they started in the early 90s. But they have this world watch list, 2021. And they show the top 50 most uh, dangerous countries for Christians to live in, where the most persecution happens. North Korea has been on the top for like 20 years, but now there's others kind of competing with North Korea a little bit. But uh, I, I was reading these facts in this article. It said that the listed nations on this top 50 contain 309 million Christians living in places with very high or extreme levels of persecution. And that's up from 260 million in last year's list. 49 million more than last year in terms of Christians living in these highly persecuted areas. And they had these stats. They said every day, 13 Christians are killed for their faith around the world. Every 24-hour period, 13 Christians are martyred for their faith. Every day, 12 churches or Christian buildings are attacked. Many of them burned to the ground. We see this in the news. Every day, 12 Christians are unjustly arrested or imprisoned, and another five every day are abducted because of their faith in Jesus Christ and maybe never have a trial. We see some of that uh, in Afghanistan in the wake of everything that's happened this past year. And I love this quote. David Curry, who's the president and CEO of Open Doors USA, he's talking about this report that they released, and he says, you might think... The list, this world watch list, is all about oppression. You might think that, (laughs) he says. But the list is really all about resilience. You might think this list is all about oppression, but it's really all about resilience. And then he goes on to say, the numbers of God's people who are suffering should mean the church is dying that Christians are keeping quiet, losing their faith, and turning away from one another, he stated. But that's not what's happening. Instead, in living color, we see the words of God recorded in the prophet Isaiah, I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. This is just a fact that All around the world and throughout the last 2,000 years, guys, there have always been some, and there always will be some, who would give anything to stop the influence of Christ and the spread of the gospel. But folks, let me tell you something. There are always others, and many, many others, as we're going to see in today's passage, that would absolutely lose everything for the gospel. They would absolutely lose everything to have Christ. And that's how it is all around the world. And we see that in this report. We see that 2,000 years ago in today's passage. So how should that frame our understanding of our mission to bring the good news to the ends of the earth? How should that inform our mission, our understanding? This is the big idea for today. It's that the gospel demands a response. And so we should anticipate 
both acceptance of the gospel and resistance to the gospel. The gospel demands a response. There are only two ways to respond to it, accepting it or rejecting it. And so we need to prepare ourselves for both, for acceptance and for rejection, even leading to resistance, active resistance, and even persecution, as we'll see. So we're going to look at those two things today. First, we're going to see these two different responses, which I would argue are the only two responses to the gospel, acceptance or rejection. And then we're going to kind of double-click on rejection, and we're going to go a little bit deeper and see a kind of rejection that is outright, uh, not just rejection, but outright resistance, active resistance to the spread of the gospel. So that'll be in the second part of our passage. So first of all, let's look at this. All people will respond to the gospel Everybody that hears the good news of Jesus Christ will respond to it. Some will reject Jesus. Let's look at that in verses 1 through 3. As they were speaking to the people, and again, this is in light of this miracle, this healing of the paralyzed man in chapter 3, this evangelistic speech, the gospel is presented. So in the wake of that, as they were speaking, the apostles were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard, remember these guys, the ones who arrested Jesus? And the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and what? Proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So what was it that was disturbing them? They were proclaiming in the name of Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And it says they laid hands on them and put them in prison until the next day, for it was already evening. So... I know how we're going to take care of these guys. Just grab them, arrest them, stick them in prison. Still happens all over the world today. So let's look at the second response, and that is that some will accept Jesus. And I love how Acts has both realities paralleling each other all throughout the book. Some will accept Jesus. Look at verse 4. It says, But many, many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. That was one of the ways of numbering households back then. You would number the men. So at least 5,000 men is what the number within the church of believers came to, right in the midst of that act of persecution. Um, And and there's these little summary statements that Luke includes throughout Acts. We're going to see a bunch of them, but it kind of like in the middle of these, these internal and external threats to the spread of Christianity and the spread of the gospel, you see these little snapshots of the growth and the health of the church. And it's, it's a way for Luke, the inspired author to say, look, in the midst of all this, God's kingdom is advancing. In the midst of all this, the gospel is spreading. I love that. Um, as I was thinking about this, just a way to illustrate it, um, you know, I've been on a lot of, of Amazon pages and, and online stores and everything nowadays, all the products, not to mention like blogs and podcasts and videos, everything has a like or a dislike option. <laughs> and sometimes you go on there and sometimes the product gets like 25,000 dislikes. It has like a third of a star, you know. Sometimes it's got like five stars and like, you know, 50 million likes, and it's like the greatest thing since sliced bread. But then sometimes you get these products where you don't know what to think, because it's like, gosh, there's 11,230 dislikes, thumbs down, but then there's like 14,822 likes. 
And there's all these scathing reviews, but then there's all these, it changed my life reviews. And the gospel's like that. The gospel leads to either a rejection or an acceptance. It either, it's either, as it says in Scripture, it's either the smell of life or it's the smell of death. When we tell people about sin, when we say, guys, we're sinners separated from a holy God, we need a Savior. And people say, I don't know about you, I'm working for my salvation, or it doesn't matter, there's no God, there's no spiritual reality, or whatever it is, however people deal with that. They discount the gospel, and they reject it, and they give it a thumbs down. Other people realize in their heart, they know that there's nothing they can do, that they are creatures, that they are, are created, that there's nothing they did to bring about their own life and being, and that they owe that to their creator. And yet they know, we know deep down in our hearts that there's this void, this chasm that's opened up between our unholy created selves and our holy creator, that we're not perfect, that we need salvation, and that Jesus is that Savior who died for our sins and rose again. And then we give it the like. And then we give it the incredible review. It changed my life. And the gospel should. Jesus does. But that's kind of what I think about when I think about people's reactions to the gospel. It's like likes and dislikes. There's not anything in between as far as I'm concerned. Because if you don't accept the gospel, you reject the gospel. If you think you've got some other thing worked out with God, then Jesus Christ and Him crucified and resurrected, then you, you reject the gospel. If you're working your way to heaven, you've already rejected the gospel. So there's two responses. And I was thinking about application for this. And I just thought about, you know, I'm so, one of my sins that I really struggle with, one of my idols is people-pleasing. Um, which it's funny, God put me in a position to like do public speaking every week. But uh, I mean, I really wrestle with it. I want to please people. I want people to think well of me, Right. Um, and so I worry about how people are going to respond. Like if I share the gospel, if I share my faith, if I tell people that I believe in a God who is uh, at least in a sense invisible and a Savior, Jesus Christ, who did walk around flesh and blood on the earth, but is now seated at the right hand of God, the Father in heaven. You know, I think are people going to think I'm crazy or are people going to think I'm weird are people going to not just discount the message I'm bringing, the gospel, the good news, but are they going to discount me as well? Are they not going to want to hang out with me and invite me to their parties? But you know what? I, I'm comforted by this passage because it reminds me that we don't have to worry how people are going to respond, that all we are is the messengers. We don't change people's hearts. We don't go in and renovate people's hearts. We don't convict people of sin. That's not our job. That's God's business. That's the Holy Spirit's work. But he's called us, he's invited us and given us the privilege to be the bearers of that message, to be the witnesses of Jesus Christ. And so we don't need to worry about what people think. We don't need to worry about that person I thought was going to believe in the gospel didn't. And then that person I I thought wasn't going to believe in the gospel, trust in Christ, they did. Like, we can't work all that out. And all that does is stir up anxiety and feed those idols of people pleasing. What we need to do is just present Jesus, present Jesus our Lord crucified and resurrected, and then let God do his work in people's hearts. It doesn't mean we can't have a compelling testimony. It doesn't mean we don't need to work on figuring out how to share our faith in ways that are, are resonate with people in their life situations. Sure, but ultimately it's not our job. And so just like in the passage, some people are going to reject, some people are going to accept. And just like the apostles, we just need to bring the message, not worry about it, not fear people's rejection, leave that part to God. 
So when people accept the gospel, this gets into the rest of our passage that I'm excited about this morning. But when people accept the gospel, I mean, I'm sure, uh, well, you all have heard my story, but a guy prayed over our cheeseburgers at a pub at lunch one day. And, and I was convicted that I didn't have a relationship with God. I'd never trusted in Christ. I didn't have a personal relationship with, with God through Jesus Christ. But I told everyone I was a Christian. I grew up in the church. But as my pastor before said, you can grow up in the garage and not be a car. Uh, you can grow up in the church and not be a Christian. And so this guy's like, he thought I was a Christian. He's like, let me pray uh, uh, for our meal. And he prayed. And, and I was so embarrassed because there was like four people at this pub, you know, at the bar. They could care less of what we were doing. We were the only other people in there. Nobody really cared, but I was so mortified. And the waitress came up, and I was like looking down. I could see her feet, and I was like, what is she going to think? We're these weird religious people praying out loud to an invisible God over for our food or whatever. But it was funny because in that moment, I was convicted of my sin. I was convicted that I didn't have a relationship with God, and I trusted in Christ. In the, in, in the silence of my heart, while he was praying that 40-second prayer, I trusted in Jesus Christ. I was 23 years old. And I told, uh, Dan was his name, I told Dan, uh, like two weeks later, I was like, you know when you prayed over our cheeseburgers? I trusted in Jesus. I accepted the Lord. And he's like, he didn't know what to say. He's like, are you kidding? Like, I don't, what, what's going on? He was just like shocked. One, he thought I was a Christian already. He was actually about to give me the young adult men's ministry at our church while he went to Afghanistan to look for Osama bin Laden. But then, uh, but then he's also like, how did my prayer, you know, lead you to trust in Jesus? You know, we don't know how God works. God works in all sorts of mysterious ways in people's lives. We don't need to worry about all that. We just need to be faithful as witnesses, okay? But when people do accept, like I did, you know, in 2004, we have to equip people to live this Christian life. And, and one of the ways we equip people to live this Christian life is to help set their expectations, to teach and to train new believers and to help set their expectations. And so I guess my point for the second part is some people will resist the gospel. So when people come to faith, know that there are people in their lives and there are people in this world, and they might not know this. They might not understand the fullness of this yet, but know that those new believers are going to come up against resistance. And so how can we equip new believers? How can we equip ourselves in the church through training and, and teaching and, and equipping to, to boldly persevere in the face of resistance? How are we going to do that? How are we going to train our kids to boldly persevere when they come up against resistance to Christ and the gospel? Well, I think there's three things that our passage shows us today. Their unquenchable confidence in God's truth and the truth of God. There's undeniable evidence of God's presence in our lives. And there's unbending obedience to God's will. And I see all three of those things in the second part of our passage. Unquenchable confidence in God's truth. Let's look at that. Starting in verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And these are all the heavies, right? These are all the, this is the Sanhedrin council. These are all the leaders of, the, of, of Judaism in Jerusalem. So they're all gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas, the high priest, was there. And Caiaphas, John, and Alexander. These are all the guys that basically put Jesus on trial too, by the way. John and Alexander and all who were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Referring to the miraculous healing of the paralyzed man. 
By what power or in what name have you done this? I love this. Verse 8. Then Peter. We have a Peter here today visiting. Uh, I don't know if he's still in the room. He's back out there playing. Uh, It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. Ha! He doesn't stop there. He says, he goes back to the, the Hebrew Scriptures. He says, He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven. Kids, like, please hear this. Guys, can I see some eyeballs? Please know this. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among mankind, that is given by God to mankind, by which we must be saved. So these religious leaders, they're trying to trap them. They're doing the same thing they did with Jesus. And so they know what they're preaching. They know in whose name they're preaching it. But they ask the question, how? How did you guys do this? Remember, Jesus did some of this stuff too. You remember what they said about him? This is not by the power of God. This is by the power of Satan or Beelzebul. It's, he has a demon. He has an unclean spirit. That's what gives him the power to do these things. That was their rationalization. That was the unpardonable sin, taking the work of the Holy Spirit and the power of God and attributing it to none other than Satan. And so they ask, they say, how did you do this? And so they don't answer with a how. Peter answers with a who in verses 8 through 12. He says, I'll tell you who. Jesus. Old Testament, Joshua. That's at least the English version of Yeshua. Means salvation. God saves. Christ. That is uh, the Greek version of uh, Messiah, which is the English word for a Hebrew word that means anointed one. The Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, the one chosen of God, the greater son of David. The Nazarene. He he actually was born in Bethlehem and grew up in Nazareth. He's from Nazareth, that little podunk rural town that you guys make fun of. You know, that's that's who he is. And then he goes on. He says, you know, the one crucified by you guys, the religious leaders, you know, the one resurrected from the dead by God, you know, the one. The one that the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures talked about, that he would be the stone that you, the builders, that God put in charge of building and establishing his kingdom, that you would reject. You know that one. The one that would actually become, in God's new work, the chief cornerstone of what he would build in the church and in establishing his kingdom through the church. You know, the one who's the source of salvation, the one who saves us, Let's get back to that. Jesus, God saves. That's the one. That's in whose name we healed this man. 
So we need unquenchable confidence in God's truth. We need, if somebody asks us to explain, we need to be able to point to Jesus and believe who he is and what he's done. Next, we need undeniable evidence of God's presence in our lives. Confidence is not a work of ours. I don't care how confident you are in and of yourself. I play this game with myself too, where I think I'm pretty confident, at least in this thing. right? I don't care what it is. Your confidence can be shaken if it's in and of you alone. We get confidence, unquenchable confidence, from the power of the Holy Spirit. We also get the undeniable evidence of God's presence through trusting in God and through the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at that, starting in verse 13. It says, now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John, so John had just, or Peter uh, and John had just laid this out for him. So they had this incredible confidence. And now they're looking at their confidence and they, and, and they understood, it says, that they were uneducated and untrained men. You hadn't gone through our rabbinical school. You didn't go through our formal processes. You didn't get our, the equivalent of our PhD. We're the guys that are, we're the ones that know the Hebrew Scriptures. You don't go quoting the Hebrew Scriptures to us, all right, about the builders and the chief cornerstone. That's our business. But they're looking at them and they're listening to them and they're scratching their heads saying, these are uneducated fishermen from up north in Galilee. They're from Nazareth, that little podunk town where we make fun of their dialects of Aramaic. And yet they're schooling us on what the Hebrew Scriptures are prophesying. And so what did they see when they realized that they were uneducated, untrained men? Untrained men. They were amazed. Just like all the crowds at Pentecost, just like all the people that interacted with Jesus. Remember when Jesus was a 12-year-old kid in the temple and all like the elite rabbis and, and priests and teachers of the people, the, the scribes, were sitting there listening to this 12-year-old kid? And what? They were amazed. They were amazed at the questions he asked, and they were amazed at the answers he gave. And now his followers in the body of Christ are amazing as well. And so it says they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. I can't think of a better compliment in all of Scripture than for someone to look at you, scratch their head, and go, they must be associated with Jesus. Like this is the greatest compliment I think they could have paid them. Keep going in verse 14. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. Guys, they were speechless. They didn't, you remember when Je they would go up to Jesus and go, all right, we're going to get him this time. Uh, is it okay to divorce for any reason? Okay, we got him on this one. And he just cuts right between, right through, walks, goes on his way, and they're like stunned. He doesn't fall into their trap. Hey, should we pay taxes to Caesar? We got him this time. And he just cuts right in and, and just baffles them with his answer. And they're like, and they just stop talking at some point. They're like, all right, we got to go work on something better than this because he's got us totally stupefied, right? Same thing here. It says, and seeing the, the man who had been healed standing with them, this guy who 40 plus years of sitting outside the temple, everyone knew this guy. Everyone understood that he was paralyzed. Everyone understood that he was he, his whole livelihood was based. They had probably given him alms before. They knew this guy. He's standing there jumping around and, and going on and on about Jesus, okay? And they have nothing to say. But it says, but when they had ordered them to leave the council, so get out of here. We've got to talk about this. They began to confer with one another, saying, what are we to do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place 
through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Do you know there's non-Christian Jewish historians that have accounted for, that have included the miracles of this Jesus person that happened in, uh, in Palestine during this time? There is, there is outside evidence to support the miraculous ministry of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, in and around Jerusalem. They're saying here that, yeah, there's this, there's this miracles happening, and we can't deny it. Everybody understands. We can't just say that didn't happen, because it happened not in a corner. It happened out in the middle of everybody. And so they're like, well, what are we going to do? So we need undeniable evidence of God's presence in our lives. We need people to look at our lives and go, I can't explain that. I can't explain that generosity. I can't explain that perseverance. I can't explain that joy and suffering. I can't explain that reconciliation to marriage. I can't explain the, the mercy and the forgiveness that those people are willing to extend. I can't explain them. One of the whole uh, uh, people I talk to that don't believe in Jesus, who think Jesus was just a historical guy, right? One of the greatest evidences for the truth of the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the book of Acts tells us about, you know what one of the greatest evidences is to people? Just the fact that there is a church today. The fact that it went through 250 years of persecution throughout the Roman Empire. The fact that all of these people that we're reading about were willing to give their lives to violent, torturous deaths for something that, that they would have otherwise known was a complete lie, a complete sham. And yet they gave their lives to this truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. People can't explain it. People look and go, I can't explain that. Mass hypnotism. I mean, people say all sorts of crazy stuff. But that they can't explain. Our lives should be inexplicable outside of the presence of God in our lives. And again, that's not something we can do. (laughs) That inexplicable evidence is going to come from God's presence, not anything we do. So finally... We need unbending obedience to God's will. Please don't miss this one. Unbending obedience to God's will. Look at verse 17. But so that it will not spread any further among the people. They're like, you know, to use the analogy of a fire, which we've been dealing with, right? And we talked to the firefighters a long time about how fire spreads and stuff. Uh, So if you've ever, um, well, the point is, is that I think it's it's, uh, ironic that the flames separated out above the heads of the apostles at Pentecost because Christianity has spread across the globe like a fire, a good fire. The gospel has spread and is, it can't be stopped. Every time people try and throw water on it and quench it or stamp it out, it just springs up somewhere else. And so they're, they're looking at this thing and they're scratching their heads and they're saying, but so that it will not spread any further among the people. They're treating it like COVID or something. Let's warn them not to speak any longer to any person in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. What are they so fearful of? Teaching and proclaiming in the name of Jesus. Stop using Jesus Christ's name. Stop telling people about him. Stop leading people to him. Okay, I don't care what you do. Stop giving Jesus credit for it. And they tried to threaten him. But I love this. It says in verse 19, But Peter and John answered and said to them, listen to this response. This is a classic Jesus response here. He says, "Uh, Whether it is right in the sight of God. Remember, these are the religious leaders of Judaism in Jerusalem at the temple. 
These are God's people, right? God's, the people representing God to the people, representing the people to God, right? This is who he's talking to. And Peter and John say, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you make up your own judgment on that, right? For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And it says, when they had threatened them further, they let them go, and we get this little parenthetical phrase, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man on whom this miracle of healing had been performed was more than 40 years old. In other words, it was so obvious to everyone they were afraid of a riot if they did something to these guys. Same fear in, the, in Jesus, only they pushed through the fear to crucify him. But they're still playing that game of like, well, we don't want to make the people mad. The people are giving God credit for this. The people are saying this is a good thing. We don't want to you know, rile up the people. They're fearing man, but they're not fearing God. And that's exactly what Peter's trying to lay on them. Um, I think about this. So we need unbending obedience to God's will. We need undeniable evidence of God's presence. We need unquenchable confidence in God's truth. And uh, the, the illustration I think is appropriate here. Um, I thought about this before our predicament yesterday, ironically enough. But it's in Daniel, and it's not going to come up on the screen, but I want you to listen to this narrative in Daniel. Um, and I want you to think about these three things I just mentioned. Unquenchable confidence in God's truth, undeniable evidence of God's presence, and then uh, unbending obedience to God's will, not willing to yield to pressure to disobey God. Listen to this story. Kids, you might remember some of these names. In Daniel chapter 3, I'll start in verse 12. So just to give you some backdrop, Nebuchadnezzar builds a big, shiny, golden statue and tells the whole empire, the largest empire the world had ever known, the Babylonian empire, uh, everyone I want you, I don't care what other gods you serve, but you're all going to bow down to this big golden statue. Okay, Uh, and Daniel and these other folks from Judah that had been deported out of Jerusalem, Daniel and and these three others that get renamed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, they are unwilling to bend the knee to this big golden statue. They're unwilling to worship anybody but the one true God. (laughs) So here's what happens. Starting in uh, Daniel chapter 3, verse 12, there are some Jews... You have appointed, now these are the people that are upset with these Jewish men that have come from Jerusalem, that they won't bow down and worship the idol. And so they're trying to get them killed. They're persecuting them by way of the emperor, by way of ratting them out to the emperor and saying, they're not worshiping your big statue. You need to do something about it. So this is how they're going to bring their pressure, bring their persecution. So they say, there are some Jews you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. They're obeying God. And then listen to this. Then in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego... Is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue I've set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue I made. He's like, I'm going to give you another chance. 
When you hear the music, bow down to the statue. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. (laughs) If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. Do they have confidence? Yeah. But even if he does not rescue us, does God promise that he's always going to rescue us from harm? No, he doesn't. But can he? Every single time? Absolutely he can. And that's what they're saying. They're saying he can rescue us from your furnace, O king. But even if he doesn't, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage, and the expression of his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he gave orders to heat the furnace seven times more than was customary, and he commanded some of the best soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So these men in their trousers, robes, head coverings, and other clothes were tied up and thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. And since the king's command was so urgent and the furnace extremely hot, the raging flames killed those men who carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the furnace of blazing fire. And then King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm. Why? The undeniable presence of God. He said to his advisors, didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. He exclaimed, look, I see four men, not tied, walking around in the fire unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the Most High God, come out. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire And when the satraps, prefects, governors, and the king's advisors gathered around, they saw that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Not a hair of their heads was singed. Their robes were unaffected. There was no smell of fire on them. Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him. They violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I issue a decree that anyone of any people, nation, or language who says anything offensive against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb and his house made a garbage dump. For there is no other god who is able to deliver like this. And then the king rewarded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Folks, that is yet another example from 600 years earlier of people, of God's people, that had unquenchable confidence in God and His truth, undeniable evidence of God's presence in their lives, And would have, whichever way this thing had gone, they would have had that undeniable evidence and that they had unbending obedience to God's will and to God's word. 
God's law. So how do we apply this? I, I, can, I can think of two applications, one for us, and then one as I think about our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. And then I'll close us. But how do we live like Daniel's friends in Babylon? How do we live like Peter and John and the apostles in Jerusalem and in the Roman Empire for 250 years of, of persecution under that empire? How do we live like these people? Folks, it's not gutting it up, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and trying a little bit harder. It's not that at all. It's through dependence on God. It's through absolute and utter desperate dependence on God. Prayerful dependence on our Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives and at work in the world. That's how we live. That's how they live like this. That's how we live like that. So here I want you to ask, in the context of sharing the gospel, guys, I get it. We can be nervous talking about our faith. We can be nervous sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with family, friends, co-workers, whoever. I, I understand that. But you're not going to be not nervous because you're going to like, convince yourself not to be nervous. You're going to find confidence through the power of the Holy Spirit, just like they did. So before we go and talk to someone this Christmas, before we, we intentionally try to share the good news, to share our faith with someone else, pray about it. Pray that God wouldn't just work through you, uh, in, in delivering the message, pray that God would be at work in their hearts long before you ever sit down at coffee with that person, preparing their hearts to trust in Him, just like He did with me at a pub on a Tuesday at lunch one time. Okay? Pray before you meet with someone. Pray for God's presence to be undeniable in your life. Just if, if you feel yourself trying really hard to make your life impressive, and I mean that in like a nice way, like you're trying to make yourself seem like very good as a Christian or very... Um, forgiving or kind or something like that, just admit to God. Like, I can't be as generous, loving, forgiving, kind, gracious, merciful as you are calling me to be. I need you to do that in me. I need the love of Christ to well up in me and come through me into people's lives. So pray that he would do that, and he will. And pray that when you're being threatened or tempted to fear man above God, and to disobey God in order to fit in in this earthly life that we're living, pray for the, the power to not. Pray for the protection against that temptation. And guys, he's at work in our life. He will protect us if we'll just turn to him. Um, we can contextualize this as I just did to our American context. Because honestly, it's hard for us to identify with the apostles. It's hard for us to identify with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But guys... There is persecution happening all around the world today. And it's not hard for those brothers and sisters in Christ to identify with what we're reading about today. So folks, we need to be praying, not just in November when we do the day of prayer for the persecuted church, but as you hear news reports of Coptic Christians in Egypt being persecuted, as churches being burned down, church buildings anyway being burned down, or Christians being persecuted in Afghanistan or North Korea or Nigeria or wherever it is, Guys, let's pray for them because God's at work in those scary places too and they will never be able to quench the gospel. It will just spring up and keep springing up until Jesus Christ comes back. So let's keep those, those brothers and sisters in Christ in our prayers. Okay, so folks, I'll ask you this. What is Christmas if not a celebration of divinity and humanity coming together? What is Christmas? What is the incarnation a celebration of, if not a divine human endeavor? 
not human because God needed us, but human because God chose to include us. Human because God the Son chose to put on flesh and enter into our humanity to cure our sin problem. What is Christmas if not a celebration of divinity and humanity working together? What is the book of Acts if not a catalog of that same exact joining together of deity and humanity in the body of Christ the church? The indwelling Holy Spirit, the presence of God in us, both individually and corporately, and we as human agents chosen and privileged by God to actually play a role in this incredible great commission he's called us to in expanding his kingdom. What is Acts if not a celebration of that? So just like the Incarnation, the Great Commission is a human divine endeavor. The Holy Spirit indwells us so that we can have the power, just like it says in Acts 1.8, to be the witnesses that Christ is calling us to be. Only through dependence on the Spirit, though. Don't walk away from here thinking it's up to you. Only through dependence on the Holy Spirit can we have unquenchable confidence in God's truth, the undeniable evidence of God's presence in our life, and unbending obedience to God's will, even and especially when we face pressures and persecutions in this life. When some reject and even resist the gospel, we can trust God and rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. And when inevitably some accept, like I did back in 2003, and we feel like, what are we to do with all these new believers? We can trust God in God and the power of the Holy Spirit as we train and equip them for a life of bold proclamation and resilience and perseverance in their faith. Um, next week, we, we get to see how the Spirit-filled apostles and how the disciples in general, how the church responds to persecution. And I promise you, it will fill your heart. We get to look at that next week. It's not what you'd expect. And it doesn't have to be what you'd expect in our lives either. So we'll, we'll turn to that next week. Let's pray.